This is Fresh Tracks Weekly. So got a little bit of news this week, but we are also going to dive deep into Montana's elk management plan, where Randy's going to tell us how to get involved, how to be a part of the process. The last time the elk management plan was updated in Montana was 2005. So it might be a while before you get a chance to weigh in again. But before that, I do have a few updates. I did manage to get out sheep scouting one day this week, but got totally skunked. Pretty par for the course though, 13 days and have seen one ram that I maybe will shoot. But I did see quite a few mountain goats and had a pika just about run over my foot. So that was pretty cool. Still very worth the hike up the mountain. But after that, some of our friends were getting married. So we had a great time at their wedding. Uh, the bride in the wedding actually, Erica, she had the same sheep tag that I have a few years back and ended up killing an awesome ram. So definitely inspiration to keep looking and try to find a ram up there. And Erica also made this ridiculously cool hat that I'm wearing. Check out Flowers and Fringe on Instagram. It's her business where she makes super cool leather artwork. Everything from hats like this one to nice sheets to rifle slings and belts. Super cool stuff, really talented woman. So if you want some really cool stuff from a badass Montana woman, go follow Flowers and Fringe on Instagram. Erica is awesome, check it out. All right, Michael is out fishing right now. So unfortunately we don't have a fishing corner this week. Hopefully next week we'll be back at it. But what we do have is a few news stories to cover. In Minnesota, the Department of Natural Resources Commission recently finalized banning the use of lead ammo on 56 science and natural areas, as well as a few state parks that offer special hunting opportunities. This all began with a petition Minnesota DNR received to ban all lead within hunting and fishing gear within these science and natural areas and state parks. The DNR denied that petition in full deciding to leave fishing tackle out of it, but they did go through with the ban of the lead ammunition in these areas. So in Minnesota, these science and natural history areas and state parks are generally off limits for hunting altogether. But in the instances where hunting is allowed, it will now need to be done with lead-free shot. We've talked about lead bans in previous episodes and how they've been adopted statewide in California, within certain lands in other states like state game areas and wildlife refuges. But there's also talk of a nationwide ban on lead ammo on federal land. We do know that lead poisoning can kill birds that ingest it, and in certain instances, such as the one with the California condor, which is an endangered species, lead in game carcasses can have a significant negative impact on that small population. But many are questioning this in a lot of other scenarios, if the impacts are actually significant enough to justify banning lead outright. Lead is probably not a great thing to be littering around the landscape, but it's also a bit of a shiny object distraction where people forget about things like habitat and healthy ecosystems, which are much bigger drivers in the total health of a bird population. But for whatever reason, people tend to get more fired up about seeing one sick eagle than they do about a complete conversion of a landscape or habitat destruction. In Wyoming, there is an update on the ongoing corner crossing saga. We've talked a bunch about this case in the past where four hunters used a stepladder to cross from one piece of public to another and then the following trial with that private landowner. When those hunters were found not guilty of criminal trespass, everyone expected the landowner to appeal, which he did. But recently, the appeals court identified a possible jurisdictional defect that will stall or maybe even prevent the appeal from happening. The defect in question is related to an additional alleged trespass from one of the hunters who the landowner claimed to have set foot on his property. The argument is that a digital waypoint on one of the hunter's phones was proof that he set foot on the private property. However, the hunter and his attorney argued that that waypoint could have been created from anywhere, so the landowner withdrew the claim. But 
Now, because there was no indication whether that withdrawal was permanent or temporary, it's throwing a wrench into their appeal. The landowner has until July 28th to explain away this defect. Anyway, an interesting update to the case. We'll have to see what happens. In Montana, a grizzly bear was recently photographed in the Pryor Mountains, which is the first time one has been confirmed being there in over 100 years. There has been multiple reports of grizzlies being spotted in the Pryors in the last few years, but without proof, Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks is often skeptical as misidentification of black bears is very common. In this case, though, a photo of the bear confirmed that it was indeed a grizzly. While it is a significant jump from the next mountain range over, it's not too surprising as the eastern edge of the Absorca Mountains has a pretty high density of grizzly bears. Other than a couple of pretty low traffic highways as a minimal barrier, there's a lot of open space for bears to travel through these two mountain ranges. Montana FWP is advising landowners and visitors to use bear safe practices such as storing food in attractants, traveling in groups, and putting up electric fences around chickens, goats, etc. So this is another step in grizzlies expanding throughout Montana. They've been expanding eastward into the prairie landscape, as well as moving south from the northwest Montana population and north from the southwest Montana population. Definitely a conservation success story in many people's eyes. It'll be really interesting to watch how grizzly management morphs over the coming years. In Montana, the Trust for Public Land, MKH Montana, and the Lolo National Forest worked together recently to permanently protect nearly 6,000 acres of land in the northwest part of the state. This brings the total acreage close to 26,000 acres of land being added to the Lolo National Forest in the last three years. Northwest Montana has an interesting land ownership pattern, and while there is a significant amount of national forest land, there is also a lot of what is commonly referred to as timberland. The timberland is often these huge tracts of land owned by really big companies with a historic primary use of logging. While companies vary a bit in their policies, a lot of timberland has been historically open to public access, and more recently some of it being formalized by going into Montana's block management program. However, as companies change or merge or the land becomes less profitable, these timberlands are often sold off. Luckily, many conservation organizations, state and federal agencies have been proactive in trying to protect and conserve these lands. They can do this either by purchasing the land, like in this recent case with the Trust for Public Land, or they can enter perpetual conservation easements. A number of conservation easements already exist, and another big one is currently in the works, where the hope is to protect nearly 48,000 acres of timberland, which will block up a huge swath of land. These easements prevent future development, but they still allow for timber production while protecting wildlife habitat and providing public access. Really cool stuff. But with that, we are going to hop into the deeper dive where we're talking elk management in Montana. Got your coffee, Marcus? Try not to spill any coffee. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I showed up here all ready to talk about the elk management plan like you warned me. And then we find out that Jace and Michael are out fishing today. Yeah, they're out filming Film. a video, though. So, yeah, I, I, it does sound like, yeah, they're out fishing, but I, th I think it's work. It they're, definitely they're getting work. some cool stuff, I think. Yeah. So I guess it's just you and I yeah. getting to talk about the Montana Elk Management Plan and how pretty much every state does a process similar to this where they come up with what's going to be the management plan for this species or this area or whatever, and then they put it out for public comment. Right take the public comment, hopefully, consider it, apply the biology to it, and that becomes the plan they operate from for some future period of time. Right, and I don't know how often other states update their plans and, uh, you know, for various species, but it's <clears throat> been, what, since 2005, if I remember right, since yep. the last 
elk management plan? Yeah, the last elk management plan in Montana was uh, worked on in 2003 and 4 and approved in 2005, and it was supposed to be a 10-year plan. Most states operate on 5- or 10-year plans. Right. So we're only, you know, by the time this one gets put into place and adopted, it'll probably be 20 years. Yeah. So. Well, and I think one of the things that I found surprising in previous years is how much, like, you know, emphasis is placed on this plan. Like, right. they, like referencing back to it, like, well, we can't do that because the elk management plan says this. Right. And so it, it felt like it was stalling progress in, in mm-hmm. areas that needed it because it was just like, no, well, the elk management plan says this. We can't do that. Right. And, and so, in their defense, yeah, that, that technically is correct. Right. But when you don't get around to updating an elk management plan in this case, and the landscape and the conditions and the environment and everything are changing so much over 20 years, you're tying your hands to old management prescriptions that are almost impossible to apply under the new landscape of property ownership, of habitat, of whatever it might be. So. Yeah. Well, and I think the big, another big learning curve for me too is, you know, in my simplistic mind, I'm thinking, you know, what does the biology say? What is a, what can this landscape support in elk? And like, that's like a very simplistic way of looking at it. But so many of the factors that go into the plan are social factors. Right. Like the majority (laughs) of them really. And like, that's, it was like a hard concept for me to grasp for a long time. It's just like, well, I'm thinking about carrying capacity. Like how many y'all can fit on this, uh, you know, in this watershed? It's like, no, that that's kind of, it's almost gone completely to some extent. Mm -hmm. Um, It's so many social factors that come into play on, you know, how much y'all can, how many y'all can be tolerated in a certain area or, what the hunters want, what do the constituents want, who are the constituents. Right. Yeah, so. and your background with an, your undergrad in fish and wildlife management, you, it's just natural you'd look at those scientific parts. But if you read this management plan, like most every management plan in every state for every species, it's the social factors that become way more argued, debated, and drive the bus. Right. The, it's... I always say it's kind of like, okay, the biological parts are sideboards. We say we're not going outside these sideboards because the herd health or the whatever, you know, the the productivity of the herd would be compromised. Mm -hmm. But those are pretty wide sideboards, especially when you have productive landscapes that Montana, we could, if it was just based on carrying capacity, Oh, man, support a lot of elk. Yeah, we'd have a million elk in this state, not 145,000. So <clears throat> all these things that we're going to talk about in here that probably have people wound up aren't at all biological. No. Yeah, and I mean, there's plenty of biological stuff. I shouldn't say that it's non-existent. Like, there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of biological factors. But right. as far as, like, the management implications of, like, hunting season structures and how many elk can be in a given area mm-hmm. ends up being largely social that – yeah brings that number down yeah the biggest challenges we face in montana are we have a lot of inaccessible elk that was not the case 20 25 years ago the the public land hunting pressure has uh, the idea has been kill more elk kill more elk 
But if you don't have access, all that pressure goes onto the public land. Right. And all of our studies show the more pressure you put on public land, the greater the likelihood you're going to move those elk to these inaccessible places. Yeah. So, and they acknowledge that in the plan. Right. But there's also, a, well, we'll get to it. But, yeah, there's a part in the plan where they acknowledge the fact that elk get displaced when you, in, you know, yeah. increase tag numbers and then they're still proposing in one, at least in this one sentence, I, that it's getting me hung up, I guess, uh, yeah. that people have been posting about a little <coughs> bit on social media. Yeah, and, you know, the, the other part of this that really sorts things out and part of this process is, a, I'll call it smoking out the motives of certain groups or people. They'll say, we got too many elk. And there's uh, there's no rational argument against the idea that to, if you want to bring elk numbers down, if it's numbers of elk that's the problem, you focus on the female segment of that population. Yeah. Well, and the simplified of it, of it, or simplified explanation of it is that one bull can breed 50 or more cows right. easily. So you don't need, you don't necessarily need a high bull to cow ratio to, you know, have a pregnant cow, every cow get pregnant that year. That's not... Right. That, that's not what drives reproductivity. I mean, no. there's more or less bulls. You have, tr like, age class. You have those factors. But as far as this, the overall herd, it, I mean, bulls have very little to do with, like, the overall overall herd numbers. And that's yeah. that's why we keep getting hung up on this. And it's Right. Yeah. And so for me, part of this process is, okay, let's smoke out whose motives are stated as A, but their motive is really X. Exactly. Because we get a lot of times in these discussions where someone says, I got too many elk, or there's too many elk in this area or that area. Okay, let's just go and hammer them with cow elk seasons in the regular season. Well, really, we, it would help if we had some more bull tags. Yeah. <laughs> or don't restrict access to our bull tags. Don't make it limited entry. Don't this, don't that. And... The, you're referring to uh, a section in here, I think it's in page 56, where they get into the antlered harvest matrix. Yes. And they, they say something like, if there's, uh, I'll read it, under circumstances where a hunting district is chronically and significantly over the stated population size goal and is using limited entry either sex permits or limited entry bull permits, FWP will propose to allow... Browtine bull or any bull on your general elk license. Yeah. And basically, our, our premium, some of the premium limited entry districts in Montana, some of the most sought after tags that some of us have been applying for our entire lives, according to at least previous objectives, they right. are significantly over objective. Right. And as we mentioned before, over objective, these objectives are not a carrying capacity. It's not right. based on habitat. It's a social tolerance. Yep. And then some, I sometimes question how much the social, social tolerance has, has changed over the years. Mm -hmm. And who do you give preference to? I mean, there's so many constituents involved and it's like, I, and you have, to, I think you do have to, you know, cater to some of these landowners to some extent because they do they're a significant player right. in these districts they have a lot of Huge. private land mm -hmm. their their business is at stake but then there's a loss of also a lot of public land hunters who you know this is like their favorite like me for example it's like the favorite thing in life to do is to go hunt these elk on public land yeah. and so 
I, I don't know how you weigh that and like, mm-hmm. um, and who you give preference to, but it's just, uh, well, in an instance yeah. like that, we know because the objectives have been set so low, even though this plan sets them a little higher, a lot of these units would still be chronically old. What's the, what's the term? Chronically over right. size goal. Uh, yeah. Chronically and significantly. They would meet that threshold. So if we're trying to bring total elk numbers down, a plan to say, oh, you can go use your your general tag as a bull tag there instead of having to go through a limited entry draw. Does anyone in their right mind think that provides the incentive for people to go and shoot cow elk and bring numbers down? Is it going to create access to the elk where the number of elk is stated to be the problem? No. And no. like and it, even and it, I think it'll only make it worse because right. You're going to have added public land pressure, mm-hmm. and and a lot of I think it's not the only reason, but a lot of, or one of the reasons that these districts are in limited entry um, things is that they're easy to access. They're you know right. the country is a lot easier to mm-hmm. access, and so the more hunters you get in there, you're just going to saturate that public land, yeah, and, push and you're going to push all of the elk to the private land where yeah. we don't have access. Yeah, and so it's it's just mind-boggling that this and it's it's not new this was right. we were talking about this last year we had the bulls for billionaires yep. uh, episodes where the, the there are things in here that for reasons of politics and and you know what some people want i guess personal desires those kind of things always pop up in, in this sort of stuff so if we as hunters are raising our hands saying, as a large constituent, we don't agree with that. We need to say so. And I think it's also incumbent on us to say, here's an alternative. Let's have, you know, as many cow tags as they need to solve their population problem only on private land. Yeah, and that, yeah, that's exactly what, I mean, to me, a very simplified, like a better option would be to cross that sentence out of handing out or basically putting general bull tags in these over-objective districts. And if the true goal, as they state, is to lower elk numbers, replace that sentence with private land, cow, or, you know, even a cow bee license, an additional license, sure, knock yourself out, unlimited, private land only in these chronic, you know, the chronically over-objective areas. Yeah. And I'd let them go shoot those cows starting september 1st because that's going to disperse the elk onto the public right and we get hung up on this uh, very often well if i don't have access to the private then that's not fair i don't don't be giving away tons of cow tags only on private land because i don't have any private land access well i get that but a lot of places we're never going to have private land access but it is to accomplish the goal of bringing these numbers down and dispersing the elk to places where you might have access to them. Right. Well, and it's, so. it's, I'm curious what people think about this because I think it, I feel like it was Quentin Kujula brought it up in a meeting. I can't remember if it was a commission meeting or what, but he kind of talked or proposed that, like, well, what about private land, cow only, mm-hmm. you know, unlimited in these over-objective areas? And I feel like it was shot down yeah. by a lot of, Public land hunters, they didn't like that idea because, 
is and I can see I can see one side of it. You're giving you are giving a lot more, you know, attention per, or attention, preference. Yeah, yeah. To the, but to accomplish the stated goal, that yeah. is a solution or makes more sense. Yeah, you know that that is closer to a real solution than giving out bull tags. Yeah, like the bull tags that this like. It makes no sense. And I, and I don't know if this is still – I'm curious if somebody could articulate the argument and, like, actually – if if there is some, like, roundabout thinking that I feel like I've heard, oh, if, well, if we give, you know, a lot of the landowners bolt, the bull tags they want, then they, they'll probably open up more access on that's, their property. And that's like, well, no, that's not, why? Why would, they, right. it, why would they do that? I don't know. But right. I've heard I, – I don't know if that's, like, the thought process. I, I really struggle to, like, understand yeah. – the thought process behind yeah. that. Well, if that's the thought process, history does not agree with that yeah. thought process. <laughs> that's just how we are. And one of the dynamics we're dealing with in Montana is so much of our acreage that contains elk is private. And those private lands are going to people who have lots and lots of money. They may not even outfit it. They aren't going to allow the public hunting on there. And their working neighbor bears the cost of a lot of that because he's putting up alfalfa. He's got cows to feed. He's trying to make a go of it. Well, come hunting season, all the elk end up on that, per- on that we'll right. call it a refuge ranch. Quick as season's over, they disperse, and now the guy who opened his ranch to public hunting or something enrolled in block management or did something to be part of the solution, now the headache's on him again. And so... These kind of management plans and the prescriptions they have and how you set objectives, that's all great. But until we solve the neighbor problem in these areas, where the, a lot of this plan is focused on these areas. Yeah. Uh, the, if there's one thing I'm noticing compared to the old plan, this plan has a lot of attention given to the areas, I'll say, central, eastern, places where we have a lot of mix of public and private or mostly private. And this plan puts a lot of focus on that. But we're not going to solve any of that through this plan or through public hunting or whatever until we have neighbors, new neighbors mostly, who want to be a good neighbor. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And there's only so much you can do as a state agency. Yeah. Like to, And I think... They're trying, like for sure. Right. But um, so I'm curious. Besides that section in the plan, is there anything else in there that was a red flag to you? Could- uh, you know, I've mostly looked at our region three and region four mm-hmm. places I hunt a lot. Three, four, and maybe five. And it's I think it's a better plan. Some of the ideas here, depending on which of them get adopted, uh, but I think it's got more thought put into it. It's less of a one-size-fits-all. Our old plan was like, you know, from northwest Montana to southeast Montana, we're going to kind of do everything the same. This gives each manager a little more flexibility. So I think that's good. Probably one of the things where I see we're using the term uh, not uh, for some of these cow-elk tags where they are saying, well, this would be an option we'll give this many cow elk or bee tags, antlerless tags, whatever you want to call it, and they're not allowed to be used on national forest. Well, most of these units that have a lot of 
overabundance don't have much national forest. They have a lot of BLM and a lot of state land. Right, yeah. So why we say not available on national forest in a unit that has virtually no national forest, if we're trying to push the elk, focus the harvest on the private land and push the elk back onto the public land, we should say private land only. Yeah, that, that was a thing. Like when I submitted my comments, it was like, yeah, private land only. Do not include BLM and state land because right. there's a lot of areas when, you know, maybe it is only a couple state sections in some of these districts. But when those elk get on those state sections, it's it's honestly unsafe. Oh. There's this like shooting yeah. galleries of people just going nuts out there. Yep. And it's just like. And this. The, the other thing, and we've seen this in some of our areas under the old plan where we have issued a lot of extra cow elk or cow bee tags in places with virtually no access. And whether you're a resident, a lot of non-residents coming by those, and what little pieces of public land are in those units has a higher density of hunters than it does deer and elk. Yeah. Well, I'm not saying, like, to not give out permits at all right. in those, but it's just, like, appropriate levels. Like, right. you know, have the regular normal elk bee license, like have a appropriate number that's not going right. to completely overcrowd the public land. Right. And but. those are traditionally, though, a lot of those cow elk permits have been on a, on a draw. Yeah. And then over the last few years, we've said, no, let's not put them on a draw. Just you can go drive through at the, you know, the 7-Eleven and buy four of them if you want. <laughs> And what we've seen, and our, our biologists who work for the agency, they've done their studies, the greater the pressure, you reach a point of diminishing return. Where you're actually not killing more elk. You're right. going to kill less because there's so much human presence on that landscape. Right, and they, they, elk are smart. They yeah. go where the better habitat is and the greater security is. Yeah. So if you make public land, which already in some cases doesn't have the habitat of the private land, and you make it a shooting zone... Just like, you know, like some of the places you said, it's almost unsafe. Those elk aren't going to be there. So how much harvest do you think you're really going to get? So I, I, I'm looking at that, and that's probably the next thing that sticks out to me the most is you have the data, you have the research that tells you how too much pressure influences where elk go. Yeah. And uh, some of these prescriptions ignore that. Yeah. Largely reading through it to me, I didn't see anything that, you know, other than those few things that we mentioned mm -hmm. seemed pretty reasonable. And, right. but again, like you're, you're operating within certain sideboards and there's only so much that goes into this plan. And I, it, I feel like it's more of a, you know, what we're going to do for permit numbers, what we're going to do, like, you know, in each district, as far as how many permits, Yeah, I feel like that's largely what, a ton of this looks at yeah. and so it doesn't look at access and so but I, I think that's just a different it's a different avenue that's not what they're discussing right now but I, right. I think large in large in Montana access to elk is one of the biggest issues what, for if they want to accomplish these goals that they're trying to accomplish of yeah. reducing numbers and having better quality hunting for all hunters private yeah. and public it's just like People need access to the elk, right? And if they're if we're doing stuff that pushes them all to private, that doesn't help. And then also, 
but also being proactive and trying to get more access. I think that's like the thing I'd love to see. And again, yeah. like this, that's not what this plan is about. But no. so I'm kind and of on a side tangent here. But but I think the other part is there's a lot of places where we have access that don't have any elk. Well, like, yeah. Look, look at Region One, Northwest Montana. Used to be one of the hotbeds for elk. Mm-hmm. There's, I mean, you if you go through this plan and you see what the objective ranges are. Like, oh, my gosh, right? Is there any – okay, have a season, but it doesn't really matter what the season is because you've set the objective so low. So is there going to be parts of this elk management plan that say, all right, our objective is this, we're below that. Let's do habitat improvements. Let's do other things to get up within the objective range. Yeah. Or are we just going to slide the objective range down there? You know, the old set the bar low and hit even lower. <laughs> Let's hope that's not the case. So if people are watching and you live in an area or you hunt in an area that has low elk numbers, push for higher objectives. Yeah. Because higher objectives isn't, quote, unquote, accepting the status quo. It's saying we're going to do something because a plan would say, okay, work with partners, work with agency partners, work with in this case, the federal landowners, to create more habitat and hopefully grow more elk in places where we do have access. So we could go into a lot more, I'm sure. (laughs) Uh, I I guess the point I want to leave people with is when these plans come out in your state, in this case, Montana, in this case, elk management, if someone comes to me and complains about how elk are managed in Montana – after this plan is out, my first question is going to be, did you comment? <laughs> and if you say, well, no, I'm going to say, I'm not listening to you. Yeah, well, maybe if you're in sixth grade, okay, I'll, right. I'll, I'll give you some, some leeway there. But there's, think about how many people are not involved and engaged in this, but they're going to be the ones complaining in two or three years about how elk are managed. And yeah. part of our, our platforms – We've been talking about this out on Hunt Talk for a month now. We're talking about it here. We're going to do some social posts and get your comments in. Yeah. So. Yeah. And and to me, I guess I just want to end with the fact that I've been pretty happy with my life of a hunting elk in Montana. In the scheme of things, like, we can sit here and complain and whatever, yeah. but We're, I've been able to have amazing experiences every year since I've been 12 years old and before that going out with my dad. So it's just like in the scheme of things, the world's not on fire, but to me, a lot of it's protecting what we have and making sure it doesn't get worse and, you know, little improvements along the way. But sometimes I get a little like, I don't know, go down a rabbit hole of, you know, thinking the world's on fire. But it it is like, like you said, it's this really, it's pretty cool that we get to be involved in a public process and submit comments and, mm-hmm. and, you know, try to come up with good solutions, yeah. but, you know, yelling at, you know, biologists and people who work for FWP isn't going to accomplish anything. So it's like, oh. come up, you know, don't just bash down every idea that gets brought up, come with solutions and yeah. like, think of like, well, if that's not going to work, what, what is going to work? Right. So don't just always be tearing everything down. Yeah. We have to also build. Yeah. As my grandma used to say, complaining without a s- solution is sniveling. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Don't be a sniveler. But I, I think part of the reason that sometimes this does get heated is you will have some smaller stakeholder group 
try to grab portions of a plan or grab a unit or units and say, this is what we're going to do. And so the rank and file stand up and say, wait a second, we're trying to let the, the tail wag the dog here. And so it does get pretty heated at that time. And yeah, you know, if we have a good plan that gives flexibility and is honest about what goals it wants to accomplish, hopefully we'll have fewer legislators who think they have a PhD in elk management. Because <laughs> the legislature, when they start tinkering with this stuff, it really gets to be a mess. Oh, yeah. And uh, anyhow, I hope if anyone's listening, uh, everyone who's listening, I hope they go out there to the Fish, Wildlife, and Parks website. They click on the link, and then you get to do general comments, and then you do it by region. Get your comments in by July 31st. Yep, coming right up. All right. Thank you. Thank you.